0: You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K.
1: And now a word from our sponsor, SixSense. SixSense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Welcome to SpyCast. My name is Dr. Andrew Hammond, historian and curator here at the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. Every week, SpyCast explores the world of intelligence and espionage by bringing you in-depth conversations with spies, spy masters, intelligence officers, and authors. We explore the stories, secrets, tradecraft, and technology of a world that looms beneath the surface of everyday life.
0: Hello, I'm Alexis Albion. I'm a curator here at the International Spy Museum, and I'm very pleased today to welcome our guest, Bonnie Jenkins, to SpyCast. Bonnie has an extraordinary bio, and if I were to tell you everything that she's done, it would take up our entire time. So I'm just gonna hit a few of the highlights here, which are pretty amazing just by themselves. So Bonnie is the founder and president of the nonprofit organization, WCAPS, which stands for Women of Color Advancing Peace, Security and Conflict Transformation. And I hope Bonnie will tell us a little bit about that as well. She's also a non-resident fellow at the Brookings Institution. And president of Global Connections Empowering Global Change, LLC, where she's working on issues of global health, infectious disease and defense innovation, which makes me think she must be very, very busy these days. Now, previously, Ambassador Jenkins served as a coordinator for threat reduction programs in the Bureau of International Security and Nonproliferation at the Department of State. She was also a program officer at the Ford Foundation. She worked on arms control and non-proliferation issues, both in and out of government. I also want to say that Bonnie is a retired Naval Reserves officer, and she has such a large number of academic degrees. I'll just mention a PhD in international relations, a JD, a Master of Public Administration. Is that enough for you, Bonnie? Is that enough? <laughs> But the most important thing to me about Bonnie Jenkins is that she is my friend and that we serve together on the 9-11 Commission, otherwise known as the National Commission on Terrorist Attacks upon the United States. And that's how I know Bonnie. And that's why we have invited Bonnie to talk to us today. I served on the commission as well. And we thought we would just chat a little bit about our experiences there and share with you what that was like, what we've
2: learned, and so on. How's that sound, Bonnie? That sounds great. And thanks for inviting me, Alexis. It's really great to just kind of sit back and remember and think about our experiences on the 9-11 Commission because there were, were many and there were a lot of really good memories from those. It wasn't that long. It was only like, what, a year and a half of a yeah,
0: it was. It, it was yeah,
2: that's and I thought it
0: was. It, I'm trying to remember exactly.
2: It's a little hard because
0: we did get an extension of time, but I think it was around 14 mm-hmm. months. This was from 2003 to 2004. And just in case any of our listeners are not familiar with the 9 11 Commission, which is what it is generally called, I gave you the long name, but just thought I would explain that this was a commission appointed to investigate the 9-11 attacks. In fact, it's worth just mentioning its mandate. We did have a pretty extensive mandate. It was to provide a, quote, full and complete accounting, end quote, of the attacks of 9-11. We were supposed to investigate the facts and circumstances surrounding the attacks and make recommendations as to how to prevent such attacks in the future. That's the shortened version. It was actually quite explicit and broke it down into all the different areas we were supposed to look at but this was a really a giant mandate <laughs> an awful lot to do again we were given i think a year uh, originally to do it and ended up being a little bit more than a year and the commission reported out in July of 2004 so it's about well, 16 years ago extraordinary <laughs> yeah can i just start with asking you, Bonnie, where were you on 9-11? Do you remember what you were doing and and how you responded to it?
2: Yes, I do remember very well, as I think most people do. I was actually in the process of getting my PhD from the University of Virginia. And I live in Northern Virginia, and I think I must live maybe about an hour and 45 minutes from UVA. So on that day, I was at home, Because I was also working at Rand Corporation, part-time. And that was located, I think it's still located actually at the Pentagon Mall, which is an Mm -hmm. interesting place for the think tank. And that day I did not go to work because I was at home doing some research. And so it's a fortunate thing I did not go to work that day because I would have gotten stuck in everything that was going on. So I was home that day by chance and I was working and doing some research and I got a call from, a, and I didn't have the TV on and I got a call from a friend and she asked me if I knew what was going on. And I said, I have no, I don't know what you're talking about. And then I went and I turned on the TV. That's how I found out about it. And the interesting thing is, of course, after that, you know, driving to going to work every day and I was also in the Naval Reserves. And so so I was often at the Naval base that's also very close to the Pentagon. It's just like right up the hill. And so every day that I went to that space or I went to work, I would see the gash in the Mm -hmm. Pentagon, the big, huge hole, which was a daily reminder. But it's also interesting because I'm from New York. And so the building, and I used to go to the World Trade Center because I used to work at New York City Corporation Council, Mm -hmm. which is like a block away from the World Trade Center. And the other thing that was that, tied me to it is that there was a I've also as I said I'm in the Navy Reserves and I did Naval Intel and there was a place that there that we did 24-hour watch you know they call a watch desk where you 24-hour in case anything ever happened and that place was one of the places that was bombed that got hit. it was actually they had actually just done some renovation of the of the Pentagon right at right at that time there were a lot of connections I had to that event and Mm -hmm. But I think of all of them, the thing that was most impactful was every day seeing that huge hole and until they obviously had a chance to fix it, but you know then seeing all the, the memorials and the flowers yeah. and everything and you you didn't escape it and and as you recall, if you were and you if you were driving on going tour from like ninety five three ninety five to Memorial Bridge. Maybe that wasn't a spot. There was another spot where, if you just drove, you just always saw it, and it just got to be a regular thing you saw every day. But mm-hmm. it never, it was never, it never got to be just okay. There it is. It was always kind of like a reminder and how impactful that whole event.
0: Yeah, I was similarly. I was also getting my PhD, <laughs> and I was at it was at Harvard. So I was in Cambridge, Massachusetts. I do remember because they always talk about what a beautiful day it was just a clear blue skies, absolutely just gorgeous, kind of early, you know, getting into fall, late summer day. And uh, I had the similar experience as I was actually taking a run that morning. A friend of mine was staying with me uh, while she was looking for an apartment. She and I went for a run by the River Charles that morning. It was absolutely gorgeous day, came back. I jumped in the shower and when I got back, she said, eh, I heard on the radio, you know, a plane. Uh, Flew into the World Trade Center. We thought that sounds very odd. Turn on the TV and basically spent the next whatever it was three, four hours watching watching TV. And I remember I had a a lunch that day, which I was supposed to go to sort of a a international affairs lunch. Um, And I remember thinking, should I go? Should I not? And I thought, well, what else am I going to do? And I walked outside, and it was so quiet. I know all these major cities. Boston, of course, was one city where the planes took off from. It was kind of like and nobody was going out and, and I do remember they were actually sending out fighter planes in the sky and you could kind of hear them but it was so it was eerily quiet and yet beautiful and walking in the streets I didn't see very many people but the, everybody you saw sort of was have going through this similar shock and pain of the day so yeah something you can't forget. So Bonnie let's see about three years later or two and a half years later I guess how did you get
2: invited to come and serve on the commission? I was invited by Phil Zellico, who I knew from UVA. We had actually worked on something called a cultural oral history. Executive Director of the, of the Commission. Yeah. Sorry about that. <laughs> yes, yeah, executive the commission. He was at the Miller Center at University of Virginia. And I had actually worked with him on another project prior to that. And I remember at the end of the project we worked on, which was called a Kosovo Oral History Project, because something that the Miller student did was a lot of oral histories. And I said to him at the end of that, I said, well, this is really interesting. If something else comes up, just let me know. Give me a call. And I didn't really I mean, I wasn't thinking of anything. I just like kind of dropping if something does. But I got the call. I was actually in California. I was doing some simulations for a center at Stanford, and they would do we, do the, we used to do these arms control simulations. And it was, it must have been in January because that's when we were doing it, and normally did it. And I got a call from Phil Zelico, and he asked me, "Do you want would you be interested in working on the 9/11 commission?" Now, at the time, I was in the writing I had just started the writing phase of my dissertation. I was at the Belfer Center at the Kennedy School, and I had a two-year pre-doc, and I had just—it was just the first for obviously it was from September to January, so I wasn't there that long. I had a dilemma because I said I, you know, I just accepted this pre-doc fellowship. I just started it. I didn't know if I should try to defer. I mean, what would deferment mean? Would they be willing to let me defer it? But you know, something was telling me, and I remember Professor Scott Sagan who's there said to me, and I asked him, I said, what do you think I should do? You think I should do it? He said, Bonnie, you really should do it. It's kind of one of those once in a lifetime things. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take much nudging for me to do it. I said, I'll make it work, but right? This is something I, I really need to do. And I really wanted to be a part of. So, you know, I reached out to the folks at Belfort. They were very kind. They said, and they know Phil Zelico, and you know, and they obviously knew the importance of this, and they were very kind and said, "Okay, fine, you can, you can do that." And actually, what happened in the end is, when the commission ended in the summer, I went back and finished the, and finished up the dissertation at the Belfast Center. So I ended up going back up to the Kennedy mm-hmm. School. Yeah. But that's when I found out. And as you may recall, the struggles I had trying to—I <laughs> was going back and forth to Cambridge. I don't know if you remember that. But I would once a week I would drive I would go to Cambridge on Amtrak, and so what I was told was, and you know this having done a PhD always do a little bit a little a day. So even if I couldn't really spend as much time as I would have if I wasn't doing a commission, I did make sure that I did a little bit a day, and I did go to Cambridge once a week, and I was in the office there, and I and so I kept it going much at a much lower pace, of course. That's the difference between you and, you and me, and you are
0: extraordinary. You yeah, can I'm do, do, do that and write a dissertation at the same time. Yeah. yeah, Normal human beings aren't like that. I just let you know. <laughs> but I also got my invitation from Philip Zellico, who I had also studied with a little bit when I was at Harvard. I was actually in D.C. at the time working at this obscure place called the International Spine Museum. And I did get a call from, I actually happened to be... In uh, back up in Boston just for like a few days. And I got a call from him and I said, well, I'm actually here. And he said, Why don't you come over and have coffee. I'd worked with Phil as part of my uh, history PhD. I'd actually done a, a field of study with him in international relations over at the Kennedy School. I was doing a PhD in history, but I was allowed to do a field outside of the history department, which I did at the Kennedy School. And then, of course, Philip was also very close to one of my academic advisors, Ernest May. Who also ended up being an advisor, I think, was his position on the 9/11 Commission. I was writing my dissertation about intelligence relations in the 1960s, <laughs> which it was for me was an extraordinary thing. Literally, you know, one year I'm working on archival material from the 1960s, and then you know, next year I'm looking up, working on archival materials from the 1990s in terms of intelligence, but. I know that Phil had kind of a a vision for the 9-11 Commission report of writing a report that would actually be read, which people might not know was kind of like a quite quite surprising thing at that time. Commission reports, blue blue ribbon panels and all those reports that came out usually sat on, on shelves in congressional offices gathering dust or in libraries because they were very dense and boring. And the 9-11 Commission kind of was innovative in that sense of actually coming out of a report that that was meant to be read. It's a little bit more than that, I think. It, not just Phil, I know the, the commissioners as well, especially the chair, Tom Kane and co-chair uh, Lee Hamilton, really thought it was important that American people should have a report that could be easily read and understood. So they were looking for writers. In other words, I guess that's what I was getting at. So here are two PhDs (laughs) who spent a lot of time doing research and writing. And actually that turned out to be good training for working on the commission. So when you got that invitation, how did you feel? I mean, what were your expectations?
2: What did you think it was going to be like? And what did you think you were going to be doing? Well, when I was asked, I don't remember exactly when during the process I knew what my topic was going to be, mm-hmm. but I had been on another congressional commission before then. I had been on a commission called it's another long title. It was Commission to Assess the Organization of the United States in addressing weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> long oh. t- and Arlen Specter and John Deutsch were the chairs, and I was the general counsel for that. So I had had an experience, and then I and then I was like a consultant on the Commission on Terrorism. So I had some experience with commissions, so I kind of had a sense of where how it's going to work. We actually met; it had I mean the offices were the exact same. I think that was the Commission offices. So for any commission, if it wasn't already taken, was actually in that same space that we were uh, located. So I had an idea of what it was going to be like, but I didn't, I mean, obviously on that first call, just, you know, I didn't really know exactly what my topic would be. So I was familiar, but not exactly with what, and then, and like I said, then after that, I'm not sure when I was told. I mean, you may remember when you were told, maybe that'll help me remember. Yeah, I don't think we were told. (laughs) I I
0: don't think I was told. And and, and I think it didn't really start to come together until oh, about April or something. Uh, this was a 2003. And we did end up being on the same team, which see how we got to become friends. And so the commission was divided into these different teams to look at different parts of the whole story. As I said, the, this mandate laid out exactly what we're supposed to look at. And there's there were a lot of different areas to investigate from the story of the FAA and what happened with the planes to obviously the... Uh, the whole organization of Al Qaeda and their plan to the actual day of the attacks, to how emergency response and all those different areas. But the team we were on, team number three, mm-hmm. uh, was actually looking at what the various parts of the U.S. government had been doing before 9/11 and a little bit afterwards, actually, to counter this threat, this looming threat from Al Qaeda and and Bin Laden. And so we were the sort of the policy team as it turned out. And each of us on this team, I'm trying to remember, there are about five five or so of us, basically had a different government agency, which we were following, or we had the lead on that. We all cooperated and helped each other. And Bonnie, you were the lead for the Department of Defense, and I was for the CIA. So that made sense, right? You had a background in DOD. Did you have any personal experience of what DOD had been doing in counterterrorism? Or is this sort of a whole new area for you to investigate?
2: It was a pretty new area to investigate for, for DOD. I wasn't really... Because, no, I mean, it was it was a new area. And so a lot of the things that I was finding through the research was very much a lot of new information. I mean, a lot of it was classified, so unless I had a reason to see it, I wouldn't have seen it anyway, so... Yeah. But no, that wasn't what I was really working on before.
0: Yeah, and I mean, and again, I think I said I was tasked with looking at what the CIA was doing, which turned out to be quite a lot. And yeah. uh, and obviously, I didn't know about that. And I was pretty, as I said, I, I'd gone through documents before and gone through archives and things like that, and, uh, but uh, I certainly hadn't looked at anything that recent. I remember very well our very first all-staff meeting. Do you remember that? Why? I remember that. Yeah. It was in April of 2003. It was the first time they kind of gathered together all these various people who'd been invited to come. And we all sat in these offices with Phil Zellico and others. And I do remember Phil saying that the vision, as laid out by Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton and himself and so on, as again was that we would be writing this report that would be in every library in the country, and would be read by every school child. I think he said I I believe it was what sort of 6th grade and up or something.
2: Yeah, we had the we had the right to the 8th grade level. I think eighth that was- grade
0: level, sorry, yes. Was, yeah, we were supposed to write to 8th write to grade level and it would be read by every sort of 8th grader and 8th grade classroom. and I just remember sitting there thinking you're crazy. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I didn't think that. And this is before, I mean, of course, you know, I, I was in the military, so I understood the concept of like, of acronyms and things like that. But when, as I got more and more into the, because, you know, doing DOD meant not just doing OSD, it meant doing the combatant commands, you know, it meant doing Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was all the Secretary of Defense and all the policy, mm-hmm. as well as the actual military side of it. And I, you know, when I was going through those documents and all the layers of intel and all of the acronyms and you know I was like I you know I really didn't know how we were going to do that because I I mean that's even difficult for an older person to understand all of the nuances and and all of that and so yeah we, I mean we did it but I you know I didn't think at the time when he said it I don't think I really because I hadn't done all the research so I don't think I really understood I know it's going to be difficult but I don't think I understood just how difficult. Or how challenging it was going to be. But I thought it was a great idea. So, what, what a wonderful idea. Like, because, like I said, I had just gotten off a congressional commission, which mm. I know was going to be gathering dust. It had one really good recommendation that was actually acted on. But beyond that, it, it's still gathering dust. So, you know, so I thought, I thought it was a great idea.
1: We'll be right back after this. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust Plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com/zerotrustai.
0: Now, now one of the things that took up pretty much most of our time <laughs> for the first. At least I would say first half of the commission was interviewing people, right? We drew up these lists of who our wish lists of people. I remember us doing this and thinking everyone's we like, well, it's our wish list. So it was like, okay, President Clinton, President Bush, all these people, I just remember thinking this is crazy. And it was like, yes, yep, Yep. that's 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 mm-hmm. very reasonable. And we just drew up these lists and lists of people and we started interviewing. So uh, what I wondered is, of all these people that you interviewed or you were involved in interviews with, does anybody stand out or any experience, interviewing experience, really just stand out in your memory?
2: I would say, and I thought about this a lot, and I would say there were two, as I said, there were always two sides. There was the policy side, and I remember interviewing former Secretary of Defense Bill Cohen, and he had his His own Cohen group or something. So he went to his. That was Clinton's Secretary of Defense. Defense, yes. That was a really good interview because he was very, he remembered a lot of things. And and people may not think that that's a big deal, but there were people who we interviewed who either really just remember or really didn't want to remember. I remember some of those and it was like, how can you not remember? But on the military side, I was so impressed with all the combatant commanders because. Mm They remembered mm-hmm. they they the details that they remembered, and just understanding just how important their role, which I think I knew, but I don't think I truly appreciated the role that they play in diplomacy. Mm-hmm. You think about the military, you think about state, oh state does all the diplomacy and everything, but there's a lot that the military, particularly the commandant commanders, do in their area of responsibility and you know, I remember interviews with General Franks from CENTCOM. was an amazing interview. General Abizade
0: mm.
2: was an amazing interview. General Shelton, and then there was Lieutenant General Russell Honore, mm. who many may remember from the Katrina that happened in the South. He came in. This is afterwards, obviously. Yeah. He was the one that was walking around and telling everybody what to do and he was so impressive. And I was trying to remember his position at the time. And I think because we went out we went to we went to Central Command and we went to Special Operations Command. And I remember one time going down there on, on plane, on a plane with commissioners. And it was really interesting because you had this plane at all like all these, it was just we had the whole plane to ourselves and the commissioners, but those were the places that we went, that I went mostly was uh, in terms of outside of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, of course, which is at the Pentagon. And Lieutenant General Honor, Russell Honoré, I mean, some of some people may know, remember him from the, like I said, from the Hurricane Katrina. He was amazing. I mean, they all were so amazing, impressive.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I think I, I remember sitting in a couple of the DOD ones because I read up a little bit on some, a couple of issues like on the, the predator and the arming of the Predator, which is a, was a started in DOD, and they were very impressive people. I I was thinking about this myself, and there is one interview that really sticks in my mind because it was also chilling to me. And I should mention that the commission's archives are all in, or all, all the papers are archived at the National Archive, though I think a lot is still classified. Now, this one that I'm thinking of, Will certainly be classified <laughs> for like the next 100 years. So hopefully it uh, will be declassified sooner, but I wouldn't count on it. And and it was a man named John Mayer, uh, not the singer. Yeah. So <laughs> we did interview him, who was actually the deputy director of operations for the joint staff. And we interviewed him. It took a while to dig him up and find him because he had actually been. Present in really important conversations with the Principals Committee. It's the committee of the, the heads of all the agencies when they were brought together. And specifically for my purposes, when there were these occasions when the CIA said, We, we think we actually have eyes on Osama bin Laden. They were actively looking for him. This is the this late 1990s, and they thought they had him. The intelligence was good enough to go all the way up to President Clinton, actually, and a decision had to be made whether or not to take him out if with, with they were gonna fire cruise missiles. And one of the people in the room uh, was uh, John Mayer, who I think was backing up General Zinni, I think. And at the time, I'm not sure if I should actually say, but at the time when we were interviewing him, he, he was also in a very sensitive position, I'll just say that. And I just remember, I believe he was a Southerner and had a very sort of deep Southern voice. And it was quite sort of soft and honey-like and soothing, which is important because some of the things he was saying were absolutely chilling and it kind of lulled you. And I remember it was maybe a very rainy day because it was quite dark outside and it was just this sort of atmosphere. We were sitting in this (laughs) conference room talking to this man who'd been in on some extraordinarily confidential conversations about whether or not to launch cruise missiles to try to take out Osama bin Laden. And there was one occasion when they thought they'd located bin Laden in Kandahar, I believe it was in May 1999, which a number of people at CIA have said, you know, was the, they thought the the most, the closest we ever came to actually getting him. They thought that the the intelligence was really, really accurate. And ultimately a decision was made not to go in. It was the president's decision ultimately not to. Lots of reasons why. Collateral damage and so on. I mean, incredibly risky thing to do. Think about the the consequences—international, domestic, etc. So I'm not talking about that. But Mr. Mayor said he—I think the general mayor—said that he uh, he thought that was a wrong decision. And I remember him saying that it's that decision that was made still haunted him every night. And I remember he paused and said he should have been a dead man that night in this. Deep resonant voice in this dark room, and I literally remember a chill going down my spine at that moment. I will, I will never forget that.
2: No, I mean, I remember from the yeah the interview that I, I didn't have that. Nobody said that exactly, but I do remember that discussion about active intelligence and having you know Mm -hmm. in that moment. And I remember discussions with General Abizade on that, and the obviously the 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 care it took that they were taking and trying to decide what to do on that one. And we talked about it a bit in the report. The report, which is as good as it is, remember we had to cut, obviously had to cut a lot out. And I remember just briefly on the report, I don't know if you remember how it was too thick. Remember the seams? It was too big for the, it was too wide for the seams. Oh, the I mean, actual like, report.
0: Well, yes, because we were given a, a page count. Because we had an incredibly small window of time between which we had to give in the final, absolute final manuscript and when it was going to be distributed in every bookstore in the world. And the publishers had to have the heads up. So we've been told it has to be X number of pages. We just can't do it in time. And we found out that our final draft was too many pages. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so what, do you remember what we, ha- what we did? I don't remember. I just remember well, I font <laughs> yeah, I, <don't> <laughs> happened, I believe, I, I believe actually, that there was a version that was printed without the footnotes, just yeah. to get, and then they were able to do obviously do an additional printings, many printings after that, where we put the, the footnotes in. But we tried uh, literally making the font smaller. Uh, I think in those early copies, that the footnotes are so. Tiny. The font is so tiny. You would need like a magnifying glass, but it was because we didn't cut out. I mean, that's important that we, we didn't cut out any material. We just sort of squeezed everything. But that was a, one of those great moments where you've done everything right. And then, oops, it's like. too many. <laughs> Who would have thought? Bonnie, <laughs> do you remember any aha moments? So our team used to I said you went off to DOD for the day to do research. I'd go off to CIA. Other team members went off to state, went off to NSC, and then we generally try to come back uh, sort of in the mid-afternoon and sit around and, and we'd say, well, what'd you find? What'd you find, right? And any silver bullet today? I don't remember there being any time when we came back and said, this is it, guys, I have the silver bullet. But do you remember at all sort of any moments, either when you were doing research or in our discussions or even... When we had these big public hearings, where it was just sort of one of those, I don't know, aha moments where you thought you'd found or heard something that you knew was important or significant.
2: Well, what's interesting is, as you know, when we were doing all that research and I had and I would truck over to Crystal City because that's where all the DOD files were. And it wasn't that far. We were, at, we were you know, when we were located from N D C so it wasn't that far. But I do remember there was this long trek you had to make from Crystal City train, Metro stop, all the way to where the building was. And going there on a regular basis, you know, they give you these files and they're just files. And it was I mean, they obviously did what they could to streamline, but still there were tons of files. So, you know, you read about all kinds of things in there to pull out the nuggets, you know. Mm. And what's interesting is it was not really related to the issue at hand. I mean, there was a lot of interesting discussion about the process of decision-making to go into a rock that mm-hmm. I was reading. And this is what happens when you do research. I mean, you have distracted well, you get distracted, and you're reading because you're looking for the nuggets, Because you are looking for that "Aha, you are looking, and you, and you know there'll be more than one because it's, it's a decision process. That you're looking at and you're going through and we're, we're trying to piece together a story based on a process of decision making so you know the, there's going to be several moments that may not be aha but there are moments of like oh, okay, this is good this is good let me write this down so in that process you also read other things that also have their own story mm. uh, so it doesn't really answer the question about this but that's the kind of thing I remember is reading some of the other things that were coming out and I was like I wish I could do one on just this one. <laughs> Can we do another commission on this one just to talk about what happened? So yeah, it's not a great answer, but yeah, there. Were, I mean, the I, process of know, going everything means you just see a lot of other really interesting decision-making processes.
0: I remember going off because I I would go off to, to Line League <laughs> mm-hmm. and they gave me a room there actually and that's where all our documents would be delivered. Obviously, I couldn't, look at them elsewhere. And I remember I was going off one day, one morning, and one of our other people on the staff, Barbara Gruy, who was getting ready for, we were having a hearing coming up where she was going to be reporting. And and she was obviously very interested in the Moussaoui story, looking at what the communication between the FBI and the CIA about some of these Al-Qaeda members who had been at flight school and so on. And she was writing her staff statement for that. And she just said to me, she oh, uh, you know, keep an eye out if you see anything on this topic. And especially about Masawi. you know, she was trying to find out when information about him had been communicated from FBI to CIA and if it had all that kind of thing. And I said, yeah, 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 yeah. And I kind of went off. And and frankly, I forgot what she'd said to me and I was going through these boxes and boxes and stuff and that time I was going through these printed out powerpoint slides which were briefings that the head of the counterterrorism office had been giving to George Tennant, or, or I think had eventually got up to Tennant. and they were just they're very repetitive and he gave them every week and I was just going through box of boxes of this and then the phone rang and it was Barbara saying hey, did you find anything you didn't call me? And I was like, oh, oh, and I'm just chatting with her and then I'm idly going through these slides and then I stopped and I said, well, there's this. And I said, there's this, this slide from this PowerPoint presentation that it said, Islamist extremist learns to fly. W- would that be of interest to you? And I remember this pause on the phone and she said, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and that was actually, that of course became quite a well-known Right. And she I, I don't know if she put that into a staff statement, but it definitely came out in the hearing when George Tenet was being right. interviewed or at the hearing of being asked questions. And that had come out that he had been briefed about Musawi. actually. So I remember it's one of those things that, as you write, kind of like sometimes you don't realize it's an aha moment until until after it is an aha moment. <laughs> but looking back, it was like, wow, that was that was a pretty big thing.
2: Yeah, it's funny because I, I mean, even, I don't recall exactly what information it was. But I do remember that you, you made me think you just said PowerPoint slide. There was a there was like this PowerPoint slide from OSD. No, it was, was from the military that I just held on to because it just told so much. There was so much of a story from that one. And I'm, I'm sorry, I can't remember exactly what it was. It's probably going to talk about it anyway. But it was really there were moments. There are moments when you get something and you're like, OK, this is going to help tell the story. I do want to ask you because right now, as I mentioned at the beginning, you're involved, you started
0: this this organization, right, dealing with women of color doing national security issues. And I did go and, and look through the commission staff and about a third of the staff were actually women, but very, very few people of color on the staff at all. Certainly no commissioners. Of our 10 commissioners, we had one woman. And it is kind of interesting that you are a woman of color <laughs> and you were actually assigned to investigating the, the military, which one thinks of as a very male-dominated sort of area. It's just kind of an interesting fact. And I just I don't know, I just thought we're both women. Did you feel like being a woman on the staff that there were challenges to that or being a, a woman actually having in doing this investigation of a military piece
2: and as a woman of color, do you think that Does that have particular challenges? I think there are, well, I I think there are two ways I'll answer the question. One is that I commend Phil Zellico for giving women real stories that they had to write. Who had to write Intel. I had to write DOD. Barbara Gruey, what she wrote. There's a, and I can't remember everyone's name, but on the Intel team and, you know. Yes, there were women who were. I mean, all of the stories were important stories. So, mm-hmm. you know, I commend that there was a give people what they're qualified to do or their background or their history, regardless of whether they're a woman. So I commend the staff for that. But certainly, I mean, I don't know. If, first of all, you're right. There are very few people of color. I don't know if there's another, was there another black woman on there besides me? I don't think actually doing uh, actual investigative work. We had very right yeah so, yeah well, first of all, it's a situation that's not unusual to me, <laughs> mm-hmm. so I think the fact that i I have been in that kind of a situation so many times, I think meant that I didn't go through the normal processes of heavy imposter syndrome. however, it's hard to escape that being the only one. It's hard to escape imposter syndrome totally, so mm-hmm. there are times and th- and this is just part of being different in a predominant society that that many women of color go through is that there are times when it just kicks up you know you just think everything's going everything's going well and then there'll be a moment where you're like am I supposed to be here (laughs) can I do this but I think that's true for everyone I think everyone has those moments but I think if you're a person of color I know of color particularly when you're so few of you I think you have that happen more often. And I think the doubt is a little deeper. Mm. So certainly, certainly that reared its head every now and then. And I think, but, I, and I, but as usual, you kind of have to push it back and get the work done. It yeah. 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 I'd say
0: on our team, there were two women and I'm trying to remember, sorry, three or four men, you know, and, and so and I did think that of our 10 commissioners, the the one woman, Jamie Grellick was certainly a, a really strong figure, <laughs> mm-hmm. like incredibly smart, just, you know, and, and really held her own. So I, I think that was a great, she was a great role model in that sense. I guess I, looking back, I have to say, I don't think I had time to really think about it at the time, but looking back, when I think of the fact that our executive director, deputy general counsel, deputy general counsel were all men, mm-hmm. that might've been nice to have more, more women in the leadership, but As there was just so much to do that I didn't have time to think about that stuff too.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty obvious that Jamie was the one woman. And like you said, she was, she dynamic,
0: Mm.
2: engaged, smart, asked excellent questions all the time. If she had any kind of imposter syndrome, she certainly didn't show it, you know? (laughs) And I think if you're, if you, if you've done this long enough, you know how to get past that. Yeah, I mean there is that side of it as well. Which you're right. I mean it was, and that's true for me. A lot of times, a lot of times, you know, you get some of these positions that you're so busy that you're just kind of trying to keep keep it keep things moving. But you're right. I mean, I could that part could have certainly been better. Bonnie, if you, I was sort of looking back on the commission. <laughs> what
0: are you most proud of from from your work on the commission, and if there's one thing, so so something personal, what are you most personally proud of? And if there's one thing that you'd like people to take away from the experience of the commission, of either just experience working there, the, the report, the hearings, whatever, you know, what would that be? If there's one thing you'd like people to take away from that. Why do you think it's actually something that's worth remembering?
2: Well, I can certainly, uh, let me start, I'll throw in another category. When I'm the most happiest. I was the most happiest when we were at Barnes and Nobles with the book. And we took that photo. It was done. Yes, yes. And we took that photo of all of us in the store. We had just come from our, mm. the here, we came from the hill. We went to a celebration and then we went directly to mm. Barnes and Nobles. And when I was looking for that photo because I know it's on my Facebook and I couldn't, but I know it's in there. So I know I can find it again. That was such a happy time because it's like we did it and we were all showing the book in the place where we wanted it to be in a regular bookstore, not in the U.S. Department shelf. So that was really cool. And also the signing of the book with all the signatures and everybody. I think that, you know, it's interesting you mentioned most proud. I think you mentioned we talked about the first staff meeting. You know, we were all there. I was actually very proud of that day because I looked around And I said to myself, like you said, it was the first time everybody was around. And I said to myself, this is going to be really cool. I said, this is, I I am so glad I decided to do this. I noticed that there weren't many people who looked like me. (laughs) I did notice it then. But I also, and there were a few people, not a lot, there were a few people in the room who I knew, maybe two, besides Tuzelico. But I just knew it was a moment. I knew it was a moment. And I knew that whatever we were going to do, it was going to be important and in terms of what to take away from it i think that we can work on projects that are important to the american people that go beyond politics yeah you know i think that it can be done i think if you have the right leadership you can you can get something done that's good and beneficial to america but it has to be above what each side thinks is most important to them personally I mean, it has to be important to us personally, but one's personal opinions cannot be dominant. You have to be willing to say, this, there's something that is more important than me. There's a story that we have to tell that you have to be honest about. There's something that this is a, a, some, something very important happened in history. And we have a responsibility to the American people and the family to be, as I said before, as truthful as we can about it and not let it be shut down. And that was always something that the commissioners were aware of, which is we can't allow this to be shot down in politics. And there were were times, I recall, where we had to push back on the possibility that it could be seen that way. And we were very open and honest and really tried to meet those challenges head on. Mm. So I think the thing I would, the lesson is it can be done. Yeah,
0: I couldn't agree more. I'm thinking about this and the same thing. You know, it's it's almost unbelievable <laughs> today, maybe, to think that you could have five Republicans and five Democrats who could work together so so well and so respectfully. I'm not saying there weren't differences of opinion, and I'm not saying that people perhaps didn't have ideas in their heads about <laughs> about the attacks, you know, and and about the responsibility of. I'd say the Clinton campaign versus the Bush campaign and so on. I'm not saying that. But these were 10 people who worked together well with incredible respect for each other and who were able to come to agreement on a report that I think all of them were proud of. And I know all of them stood by because they said that and they did and they kept working on the recommendations and so on. It shouldn't be so surprising, but it is today that that's possible. And it is possible because I think you had... People who just that mutual respect and respect for the American people who had given them this obligation, Mm -hmm. Uh, and again the obligation to get it right. And I think out of that respect, they worked for worked together extremely, you know, very hard in general, and and came out with something that they were willing to stand behind and fight for, which were the recommendations. And I think I'm incredibly proud that. I think the commission report has pretty much stood the test of time. I'm not saying that others, you know, there haven't been other little factoids and things that have been on earth or that contribute to it, but I don't think there's anything that has actually sort of said, "Oh, well, commission report, that's completely, you know, sort out of that window by no means. So I guess I'm just proud that I feel as if we basically got it right. You know, I think it took me a while to sort of, Really realize what we'd done. I actually remember after the commission ended, and I had a bit of time before I went on to do my next thing actually going and taking scuba diving lessons. (laughs) I needed to do something crazy. And I actually sit on the beach in the Cayman Islands, in the Cayman Islands, sitting on the beach. And I look over, and there's a man sitting there doing some light beach reading, as one does. He was reading the 9 11 Commission report. And I think that was the moment when I thought, wow, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe they got it right, (laughs) you know? That moment I felt really proud that we'd written something that people were interested in reading and and which they
2: did read and thought it was a good read. I remember when I was in Shanghai and I worked at a bookstore. And I, I saw the 9-11 Commission, obviously not in English. And I, I said, I'm buying this. And oh, I was, was
0: going to say, I haven't bought a copy.
2: I mean, I said, oh, I got to get this, you know, it's not in English, but still, like, you know, it's been translated into another language. It's like, really, has that happened with any of the Commission report that they've translated it into several languages? Oh, many languages. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was really kind of cool. That's a great story about being on the beach and seeing that. That's a wonderful
0: Bonnie, I know I'm going to have to wrap things up here, but I wanted to ask just kind of finally, how has your work on the commission shaped your career or, or your life in general? It's, it was what, 16 years ago. Now we've moved on, but how does it, has it
2: played a role in who you are and where you are today? It has definitely impacted me in a positive way, a very positive way. I mean, just the experience there was something about the experience that I still carry. I mean, we, we're sitting here remembering back 16 years ago, but there's so many, there's a lot that I still remember as as really good times. It's been it's been nice to remember things I forgot. <laughs> and like, oh yeah, that was that was great. But I'm still proud to put it on my resume. People still remark when they see it. People say, oh, you were in the 9-11 Commission. And, you know, like you said, it has stood the test of time because it still gets a positive reaction. Younger generation, even, I mean, they know about the 9-11 incident. I teach a course now, and a lot of them are obviously very young. Mm. Uh, I assume they were born at the time. Or very young in college. But it still carries weight, you know, and it's still looked upon respectfully, which I, which is not like not the case of a lot of commissions. I mean, the one, the two I've been on, people have totally forgot about. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, but time lucky, yeah. <laughs> but this one, people know of, they respect it. It still gets a, mm, you know, impressive, and that's a, a response, and that's a testament to the work that we did, and that's a testament to the leadership the hard I mean it was a lot of hard work there were a lot of long hours I mean yeah. you know let's not mistake it was long hours getting that report right and we did an interim publication I remember that we did like our first one which was like interim through halfway through which doesn't yeah. get much attention but we did like an interim report before we did the final report so we had another publication out there so i just think the entire experience is hard to really break it down in pieces but the entire experience from You know the research, the camaraderie, the long hours, the all of that packaged into an experience that I think has shaped me just because of what it was. Yeah, and everything about it. I
0: feel like I have certainly
2: gained because I was, you know,
0: writing a dissertation about intelligence history, and for me, I actually I went back after the commission ended and finished off my dissertation, and I feel like I looked at my research in, in a different way. I actually had gained a a sort of huge appreciation for the role of uh, public oversight of intelligence. Actually, (laughs) I I looked at what I'd been my research, what i had been writing, and I I saw it actually through a different lens. And I saw that what we had been doing on the commission had been the sort of public oversight role. It shaped that. And I I feel as if I understood government and things in, in a different way. And I think a lot of that is, has stuck with me, the importance of the public actually playing a role in understanding intelligence, what our intelligence agencies do, having some idea of, of what their capabilities are and aren't and so on. And so I think in many ways that, that has shaped a lot of my thinking. And here I am working at in the International Museum again. <laughs> and uh, and, I, and I think one reason why I wanted to do that and I'm happy to do that it's because I feel like public education about education, about intelligence and the role of intelligence agencies and intelligence in our world and so on is actually really important. And I think the museum serves a sort of civic role in that sense. And, uh, and I think people would benefit from, from understanding more about it and how it shapes our world. So I do feel as if the commission uh, has gotten me where I am today. And of course, I got to know you. So that's good. I know we could talk about this a lot more, and maybe we should. <laughs> this has been a uh, really nice, yeah, stroll down memory lane, as they say. it's us really have good. a socially distanced glass of wine. Yes, <laughs> yeah. celebrate and, again. You know, we don't have to record it. We'll talk about all the all the really good stuff. But...
2: <laughs> exactly.
0: <laughs> well, I just want to thank you very, very much, Bonnie for joining me today and having this lovely chat and I hope it was of some interest to our listeners today and I hope you'll come back and do some more stuff with us at the museum.
2: I would love to this has been great thank you so much for having me here to do this. Great thank you so much Bonnie. Thank you.